listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I'm the host. The first guest of 2020 is Anna Ronsky. She is the Dean of Teaching and Learning at a school in Istanbul, but she's also been a teacher and a costume designer for the opera. I met her when she was a student at the University of Massachusetts, and even as an undergraduate, she already had a lot going on. She had a confidence about her work that I'm still amazed at when I think about it today. Also, she was super fun to hang out with. She's a pro. Kudos to you, Anna Ronsky. A note about sound. It's not so great in this episode. I blame AirPods and my lack of foresight. I thought it would be good enough, but apparently I was wrong. I hope you can get through it. So yeah. Happy New Year! I think everything is about to get awesome. My family had a merry lockdown Christmas and New Year, but we made the best of it. We also just heard that the kids can go back to school on Monday, and so that's good, but most of the other stuff will remain closed, which I suppose is fine for now. I'm just going to stay home and try to make the magic happen, maybe get some guests, stuff like that. Okay, here's my conversation with Anna Ronsky. It's great to hear your voice, even though I have been listening to the podcast for a while. So I feel like I've been listening to you now for days. So (laughs) it also feels normal. You're my commute. You're coming to and from work with me. Can I just say that there are a few people I know who are listening to this from specific places, and I can see how many downloads come from Turkey. Oh, no way. So I'm guessing that that's you. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm the only one. Maybe not. Not not for long. I have told one of my colleagues she's very intrigued. Okay, cool. Uh, and and maybe <laughs> spread the word. That's, I saw that there were there were two downloads in Portugal. Oh, who's that was there? Dries Boss. He's a guy that I used to work with. Unless it's some someone else, and but I'm pretty sure it's him. That's great. It, the, the statistics are actually they're anonymous, but. When the numbers are so low and you you know one person in Portugal, <laughs> you know exactly who those downloads are from. That is great. I'm so glad that you can see what I'm downloading and watching. You know, just to be clear, it's the only thing I can see that you're downloading. It's fine. I, I don't really care. <laughs> it's okay. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I had a busy day, uh, but it's nice to be on the call with you. It's rainy here. I have to call my mom on my way to work in the morning. That's like kind of the only time. Sometimes in the evenings it's okay too, but it's tough. It's tough being we're full eleven hours now, and that's really hard. Oh, brutal! Yeah, that is that is definitely mm-hmm. hard. But yeah. um, is your mom is your mom working still? She just retired at seventy five last year. I know, I know. She's been a children's librarian for forever, and you know, realized that she probably wouldn't be going back into the library. She did remote children's library work through the summer, the first summer of the pandemic, and then knew kind of before there was vaccine in that period, she just couldn't be at that age with kids. Yeah. But she's she's at the library every day. She's she's good. She's still volunteering places and doing quite a bit. She's way more active, I think, than I am. I'm jealous. Can I just say that (laughs) children's librarians are kind of the greatest? Uh-huh. I, I agree. Such, I'll let her know. <laughs> it's such a good thing. I remember, oh, what? I can't remember. I think her name was Beverly. I remember the woman who worked in the local library in my hometown mm. and the ladies at school. And I might not remember their names, but 
I definitely remember their faces and I remember mm-hmm. how eager they were when you asked them about books and how eager they mm-hmm. were to show you how to use the card catalog and how great it was <laughs> for them to read to you. Like, you know, if you go there with a class and they read and it's such a cool and important thing. It is the best job. And she's, cause she was a, you know, librarian in the town where I was raised and she still lives in the same house. So she's been there for almost 50 years. And walking around town with her, she's a celebrity, you know, and she's super shy. And everybody's like, it's Marilyn the librarian. There's books that reference her. There's art that cartoonists have done with her in it. She's a local hero. It's pretty cool. It's really important. It is. You've got two kids, so you know, you know books, I'm sure. Yes. And kids, kids' books are the best. Uh, not always. Sometimes they're the worst. And that's actually, <laughs> that's what surprises me. How many, how many really? kids books are actually really terrible. And I, it just um, makes me wonder like who paid someone to make this, but yes, um, there are so many really good kids books, but it, it's also kind of surprising how many of them are just bad. I think I actually, I'm, I realized I, I get the curated mom collection. So even when I'll go home, she has books waiting for me to read because of the art or because of the language in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always like her test reader as a kid, which was great. I think yeah, I'm, I might not actually as much of a schlock out there. <laughs> All right. Anna Ronsky, I'm very glad to be talking with you. We knew each other briefly long ago, and then we drifted apart. I only know what you're doing now because of LinkedIn, but what I remember from the old days is that you were a good student and fun to hang out with. I also remember that while you were a student, you got some pretty fancy internships, which you turned into career opportunities afterwards. I guess I want to hear about how a precocious opera costume designer goes from the University of Massachusetts to being the Dean of Teaching and Learning at a college in Istanbul. I also want to hear about living in Istanbul and about the past 15 or 20 years or so, because we haven't talked for a while. So, yeah. How did you end up in Istanbul? Well, Istanbul is because my husband is from Turkey, and we I met him a little over 10 years ago in San Francisco. Uh, went to Istanbul after that first summer of meeting him, met him here, here being where I live now, uh, and... I knew, I mean, I was also like super newly in love and really excited to be traveling, but I was like, okay, we can move now. I'm ready. I was, I was pretty itchy at that point to get out of the Bay Area where I'd been for maybe eight years at that point. So I wanted to live abroad, but we didn't move right away. Clearly we just made the move this last summer. Yeah, that kind of, that's what set that piece in motion. So we met, we got together, fell in love, stayed in San Francisco for a couple of years. Then moved to New York for graduate school for both of us and work. And we're there for seven years. And we're there alone during the pandemic in Brooklyn. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. His his family was here in Turkey. He was the only one who had left. And my mom was in California. Um, my brother was in Florida with his kids. And it, it was pretty rough. I mean, I'm sure most people watched, not most, but people knew that New York was a pretty tough spot that first spring. Indeed. Um, it was brutal. And we had just moved, luckily, into this great apartment. Um, but we were pretty isolated and didn't know what was going on, like most folks, and realized, you know, we've been we've been feeling for a number of years like we really wanted to get close to family. Um, when we moved from San Francisco to New York, 
we immediately were like, this is so exciting. Why did we just see that? Why did we leave our people behind? Mm-hmm. And why did we now choose a place where we, neither one of us has people? What are, what are we thinking? But then we stuck it out because that's what you do in New York. And there was a lot of great stuff that happened there. Because New um, York is the best, right? <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. It is. A, I mean, it's a, it's a city to live in, I think, for a while anyways. Yeah. I feel like everyone who moves there is super enthusiastic at first, and then they just kind of (laughs) drift into some rut of doing normal stuff that you could do in any town, and that's pretty much New York. And then you have lots of conversations about the subway, and (laughs) you eat really good pizza. Mm, I miss New York pizza, that's for sure. It's good. New York food. It is good. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was good for many reasons for us and tough for others. And it's a pretty, like, it's not, it's definitely not a calm place. And I moved from one pretty hectic city to another. So anyways, that that whole thing happened with the pandemic. And we just, we basically expedited the process for the move. And we knew that my work as a teacher would place us wherever we were going to go next. Well, for international schools, I started looking at international schools in, in Turkey and I started looking at schools in California, and we were going to go wherever I sort of found found the work. And I got hooked up with this really cool high school. It's, so it's, it says college in the name, but it's not a college. It's a high school with a prep year program. So it's an American Turkish school. And there was a very, very intriguing job opportunity. I'd been a dean of students for three years. I'd run art departments before that at schools. And this was to work with teachers and really do a lot of mentoring and coaching and professional development. So it was it was like another angle to to the work I'd done. So we took it and we made the leap and we moved. That's kind of what we did too, though, because except the other way around. I didn't look for a job here, but I think we went on vacation because she had contacted this design firm that makes exhibitions for museums, and she got the interview. And she said, oh, well, I'll be there in June or whenever it was. And she went on the interview while we were on vacation. And and then she got the job. <laughs> great. And I was just like, all right, we're going to move. <laughs> and how long ago was that? You've been there for a while, right? Oh, yeah. It's been, it feels like forever. She moved in the summer of 2008. And okay. I stopped working at Wellesley in September of 2008 and then came over here mm. just in time for the great economic collapse. Oh, my God. It was uh, an interesting, an interesting transition. Hey, I mean, it's, it's kind of that sounds about like trying to move in a global pandemic. Yeah, it's similar. Except I took a lot of nice bike rides when I got here and didn't have a job. Oh, I've been taking lots of nice bike rides too, but and working, but the bike rides galore. How, what what is it like over there? Are, are there lockdowns and stuff? When we first got here, it was like the last few weeks of Sunday lockdowns. They had had a pretty serious full countrywide lockdown for much of April and May. Mm-hmm. The numbers got really high, and then they were opening up when we arrived. So it it seems normal on the streets. People wear masks and all of that. Um, we've been back in school, which is great. So I'm in person all the time. Kids are there. So that stuff feels normal. It's just like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not normal. <laughs> I don't go out and do stuff that's like indoors. Right. Uh, we socialize with family, of course, and like a couple of people, but basically we, we do a lot of outdoor stuff and hang out at our house. Yeah. And how are the numbers over there? I, I don't know if this is interesting to anybody. I'm just curious. I was just telling this to somebody the other day. In New York, I watched the percentage. It was like the infection rate yeah. percentage. That, and, and I track that pretty regularly there. 
I think also being in a school in New York, the schools were tracking it to see you know, if it got over a certain amount, would it be in person or not? So that was like a, a daily activity. And here they just give an overall number of how many cases are in Turkey. And it's been relatively high. Just the infected number. Yeah. But I don't know what that means percentage-wise. I have no idea. Yeah. Because it's not per population. And it's not, I haven't found one. Maybe I did once, but I haven't found it like for Istanbul proper. Right. And Istanbul. Have you been here before? I have not. I really, I really would like to. Okay. Just let me know. It's, it's an awesome city. It's great. It's huge. I've heard good things. Isn't it like politically weird right now? It's complicated. Yeah. Yes. I am. I am not a representative of the government here. I can <laughs> say that much, but I am, I'm living here and I am happy to be living here. And yeah. it's, it's kind of great. It feels both really, really normal. And I don't know if it's because I mean, we came here basically every year and moved to a neighborhood that I've been really familiar with for a long time, for about mm-hmm. 10 years. And there's aspects of, of Istanbul that right off the bat felt really familiar to me, being from San Francisco. As water is a big part of the city. The air smells the same. There's people. So it's, it's had like a weird internal feeling of home for a long time. And then I I think part of it is because I'm, I'm a super practical person. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I go moved this is normal and then the rest of me exists like that and then every so often i'll be like oh my god what did i do and then then that reaction happens and then i go back to just this is this is very normal and lovely so it's an it's an interesting like experience to be somewhere that should be so different and new but also feels immediately like home it's not bad well it also helps that your man friend is there yes yeah of course if he wasn't there it would probably feel a little less like home yeah, there's no doubt about that. And he, I mean, his family's awesome. So, oh, that's also helpful. How's your Turkish? Oh, it's not very good. Uh, I have like a whole slew of niceties that I'm very good at. Yeah, there's the routine with the gentleman where I park my car in the morning. We say a lot of you know very polite things to each other. Oh, uh, I'm good with like family and talk, like very basic again niceties. Like, how did you sleep? Would you like some coffee? Would you like milk with that? And mm-hmm. on and on and on. Um, but it's it's abysmal. I'm learning. It's a tough, tough language. If you're always speaking English at school and if you speak English at home, from experience I'll say that that it's it'll be mm-hmm. tough. I speak Dutch well enough to I passed their integration tests and and stuff like that. But Oh that's awesome. I said if you can do that and if you can pass that test, that's impressive. But go on. You said you're on a job search. Oh yeah, but on the job search, I, I don't get jobs because of my because of my Dutch ability because mm-hmm. it's not it's not near native. Got you, got you. Yeah, well, my my work actually because it's a Turkish American school, seventy percent of the faculty, eighty percent are Turkish. Mm-hmm. Um, many of whom are bilingual, but many of whom are not. And I am. It's my job to be working with faculty. So there's other departments that I need translation for. There's great translators at work. I'm very supported and very lucky in that. But even just sitting down next to somebody at lunch, I, I can't do that easily. Like I get out my phone, I use Google Translate, we point yeah. to a lot of stuff, but it only goes so far. And I know that it's preventing me from building relationships I want to build. It really is a stumbling block and I really need to get my head in the game. And I think it helps for anybody who's in any any sort of foreign place. But it's so easy not to speak Dutch here. I love easy. I would imagine that learning Dutch, though, is probably a lot easier than learning Turkish. I would, yeah, Turkish is very, very complicated as a language. I can tell you that much. Like you, you look at a, a word as like three or four times the length yeah. of what you think it should be. Uh-huh. 
I'm starting to understand certain aspects of it. And I'm hopeful that like when I do really start to learn, it'll take off because I'm so familiar with it. But it, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Not an easy language. I mean, I speak Spanish. I spoke Italian for a while. Mm-hmm. That comes easily to me. All right. I'm going to say this probably won't make it into the thing. I'm just saying because there there are a lot of Turkish people here, you can go into Turkish grocery stores and buy Turkish Ooh. products. So sometimes there are instructions on the back. And I've learned a few Turkish words. What are they? Dakikas. Dakikas? Well, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Dakikas. For instance, how long does it take to cook rice? 12 dakikas. Minutes. I think it's minutes. I think. That from, I'm, I'm guessing from context that it's minutes. That's great. Okay, what else do you know? Asi biber sauce. Asi biber. Uh, probably something pepper sauce. Exactly, hot pepper sauce. Ah. <laughs> the most important thing. The things. whole podcast will be us sharing words that we know. <laughs> Those are, for me, the most important words in Turkish. Oh, bu- burek. Burek? Burek. Burek, yeah. That's like the cheese. I forget what it means. There, the cheese bread thing. Yeah, the cheese bread mm-hmm. thing. The cheese pastry. It's good. Burek can be really good. It's so good. <laughs> There's so much good food here. This is, it's the best. Yeah, well, it, it can go either way here because a lot of the Turkish places here are low-end snack foods. Mm. But mm. then if you go to a proper Turkish restaurant, it's really good. Mm. Oh, just come to the country. Delicious, deliciousness. Yeah. yeah. Anybody who's traveled here is like, oh, it's a whole other world. No, for Pretty real, great. I'm sure. That's that's not really how it is here. I think. I mean, if you came here, you would not be blown away by Dutch cuisine. No, but they have good cheese, right? They have amazing cheese, but, you know, you can't mm. live on cheese. Or maybe you, maybe you could. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried for a little bit. Mm-mm, mm-mm, no, but that's so good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, UMass. You're from California. Yeah. The Bay Area. Yeah. How'd you go to UMass? Uh, <laughs> Why did you go to uh, UMass? Well, so I, I wanted to go to the East Coast for college, and I wanted to study costume design. I knew that that was, at that point in time, my thing. And uh, UMass was my safety school on the East Coast. I had some schools on the West Coast that I got into as well. And I didn't get into NYU uh, or BU, which is where I wanted to go for design. It was between UC Santa Cruz, which had sort of a comparable feeder costume program uh, to UMass. And then I decided to go there. I just wanted to get, go east. It's pretty lame, but if you've seen Lady Bird, the film, when she has the whole, you know, talk with her mom about how the culture is on the East Coast and all that, that's exactly what I was thinking when I headed, headed out. There was a lot of opportunity for me to do design work because there was nobody else really doing costume design when I was there. And there was the five colleges, so I was able to take a lot of art classes. And when I knew you, I was like very into art. I can remember doing lots of drawings when we were hanging out. That's what I remember. I mean, it was it really wasn't that long that we were hanging out. So that's pretty much what I remember. Going to see music shows and drawing a lot. Yeah. Um, that's what I was into. So I did, I got to go abroad twice when I was at UMass, which was pretty cool. Because the program, I did uh, one of those build your own majors. Mm-hmm. So I studied what I what I wanted to. I studied costume design and art history and painting. Took lots of classes, studied abroad in a few different places. And I think at the time, had I gone to someplace like New York, I was, was kind of snobby when I went to college. And I think that would have maybe heightened that part of me. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and thinking I was all that. And I think UMass sort of chilled me out in that aspect, which was nice. It was a little bit more down to earth and a little bit more scrappy. Like you, you kind of, I mean, maybe we'll do this in New York too, but like I could figure out what I wanted to do and kind of build it myself and push for what I wanted. It was, it was good. Wouldn't you say that, I mean, wouldn't you say, I would say that just shows that if you have an idea of what you want to do, you can pretty much learn to do it wherever, as long as you have a sports system and yes. the ability to use the resources at your disposal. Yeah. And it sounds like you did. You found the uh, exchanges, you used the five college system, you did all that, you know, you did all that stuff. And yeah, sure, yeah. New York is great. And you would have a completely different yet also awesome story if you went there. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, I'm not anti-New York. I love New York, to, to use a very, very much used phrase. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, I, I never wanted to live there, personally. I did, and then I did, and now I don't anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't really know. I can't, I can't, like, to that point of sort of the practicality, once I moved away, I was like, oh, I don't live here anymore, so I'm not really going to think about it that much. Like, I miss my friends there, yeah. um, and I miss, I really miss aspects of my job with the community. And I'm a Central Park my commute for five of the seven years was walking across Central Park to work. So that was, that was pretty awesome. That's pretty great. Um, it's much better than my commute these days. I can tell you, even though I listen to your podcast when I drive to work, but Central Park Walk was like total magic. That was great. But I think if I had, if I had gone to New York as like an 18 year old, I think it would have just been, I think it's really, it's an intense city and that would have been nuts for me. I probably would have thrived and also just freaked out. I don't know. We'll never know. No, exactly. The dwelling on it doesn't really. So that's how I ended up at UMass. And it was it was great. I'm glad I went out there. Met some good people, yourself included, in that mix. Those were good times. Mm-hmm. My favorite part about going to New York wasn't isn't necessarily the New York stuff. Of course, you go and you do the New York thing. You eat all the food. Mm-hmm. You see all the stuff. You go to rock shows down there. It's basically, you can go to rock shows wherever. I just liked going down to visit my friends who had lived there and including mm-hmm. Andrew and Becca and mm. and Don and Robin and all those people. Yeah, in the beginning I think it was it was uh it was pretty great. You so you were in Boston for a lot of the years that that crew was down there. Were you able to go back and forth quite a bit? Uh yeah, a fair amount, a fair amount. <laughs> so, somewhat, yeah. It was one time because B&H is down there. Do you know what B&H is? Of course. Of course. Of course. The giant I, the yeah, giant that's... camera store. They, the uh, place of nightmares and dreams all in one. Exactly. I had to go there after a blizzard once because my husband had to get all this film equipment. Uh-huh. And he was like, "Come, just come with me. Like, you'll help with the process. And I was like, it is seven degrees out right now. I just got off a plane from Istanbul. I do not want to go down to B&H. Like, you, you owe me for life. Uh-huh. We stood on the subway platform. I started to cry <laughs> because it was so cold. And I was so jet-lagged and miserable. I know B&H well. Tell me your experience with it, though. Was it better than mine? Oh, no. It's, it was definitely better. I mean, it was kind of stupid. I've been there a couple times. But this this one time in particular, I drove down because I wanted to look at a camera. Now, this was a, a 4 by 5 view camera. And at that time, you could look these things up online and you could order them from pretty much anywhere. But the only place that actually had them in stock is B&H because they have everything in stock. So I decided to drive all the way down there just to check out the camera to see, like put it in my hand to see if I wanted to pay for it because it would have been weird to buy this expensive camera and then return it. I guess that's not so weird now, but I felt like it would be weird. I wanted to see it. So I drove down there, went to B&H, manhandled the camera, 
went hung out on Andrew's roof for a little while and then drove back to Boston. <laughs> you didn't get the camera though. I did, but I didn't buy it there because the city sales tax oh, no. is so high. I, I went no. home and I ordered it. That That is a weird story. That's great though. <laughs> and, I love the system of police in that place. You, mm-hmm. you know, like when you go to check out and everything comes on these yes. baskets along the ceiling. Yeah. Oh, it's nuts. I always tell everybody that it's it's Santa's workshop run by a bunch of Hasidic Jews. Exactly. No, it it has everything, and they know everything there. And there's some you get to know the people there too, and like who you're going to go to for what, because they'll give you the good information. Who will take their time? And I'm very familiar. And working in running an art department in New York, they, we got a lot of our we got all of our photography equipment from there over the years. I remember you got this internship with the Opera in San Francisco, right? Yeah, I started interning there when I was 16. It was a great place. That was like my first big job. I'd had jobs before, but the opera was was it for me. But then you got like a jobby job there afterwards, didn't you? Or something adjacent to that? Yeah, I so I intern. I started as an intern. I became like a seasonal hire craft artisan in the summer. So I was making armor and basically anything non-fabric and not shoes we would make. So all of the jewelry, swords. Like different stuff, not props, actually. Those would have been props, but a lot of cool stuff. I worked in the craft shop for a long time. Then I was a costume supervisor. So you're the person that's in charge of making sure everything is done. You're liaising with the designer, with wardrobe, with wigs, makeup, and then you run the show uh, when it happens. And of course, all the costumes. And then I uh, did some design for the San Francisco Opera Center. So they would put on main stage productions in the summer was sort of the training start to be, but they would get real directors, full main stage, full budget and do full length operas. And I designed my first one before my senior year in college. And that was that was great. And I designed a few more right after college. At that point in time, I'd actually decided that I wanted to be an art teacher. So I did kind of a, I think it was after I knew you, I did a real strong pivot as only one can do when they're 21. <laughs> and was like, I'm not going to be an opera costume designer anymore. I went away. So I designed this opera. It was The Merry Wives of Windsor. My dad had been diagnosed with cancer the year before, and he was sick. Like the first year was rough and then out of chemo pretty constantly. And he had always wanted me to be really practical. He wanted me to be a teacher. And, you know, we like fought and I was strong headed and really wanted to do art. So I got this gig for the summer with the opera, designed this show, put my heart and soul into it. It was fantastic. And closing night, you know, my whole family came and all of like the neighbor women from the neighborhood were there. And I came back, like I went up on stage and took a bow with everybody and came outside and my dad was standing there crying and all of the women from the neighborhood were standing behind him in a line crying. Oh. <laughs> he was crying. <laughs> and, and, and literally I was like, okay, I think I want to be a teacher. What? Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. I know. I didn't really either. But the reality is, I mean, this is how the story goes, because in my head, it was like this snap moment of like, oh, my God, my father, because what had happened is he hadn't really seen it. I had been working 40 hours a week for summers, mm-hmm. busting in and out of San Francisco, working really hard. And my mom knew how hard I was working. She knew what I was learning. She'd go with me on the comp tickets to see the shows and be like, oh, my, you made that on stage. She saw that I was improving my craftsmanship because I wasn't particularly gifted at art. Like, I was good, but I wasn't a top visual art student. Right. And she, she saw 
what training I was getting um, through the people at the costume shop. So she'd known, but my dad hadn't. He was like, do something practical, do something practical, don't do art or don't do design stuff. Go, you'd make a great teacher, honey. He was a teacher. You'd be a good librarian. <laughs> I'm a librarian. And then I did that summer doing the design work. I loved it. And I realized that I was itchy for something different. You know, at that point, I'd spent, I think, five summers at the costume shop. It was a total home away from home. And in a way, it was starting to feel a little bit small. I had met some folks and I was interested in education. I wanted to go abroad again. So all of that had been happening in my head over the summer. It's actually in retrospect that what I really, really realized what like in thinking about all those different summers of experiences there, the summer that I, I actually I think learned the most and loved the most was when I was a costume supervisor because I was dealing with all the people. And that was really intriguing to me. Like very, very strong characters. And as the costume supervisor, you're in the middle of it and you're trying to make sure that basically everybody's happy and productive. And as much as I thought that I wanted to be the one that made the designs and had my name in the program and did all of that. Like working alone in a studio and drawing stuff was not the thing that was exciting to me. Being in difficult conversations with people and moving really fast. Like I was a great waitress. I don't know if I was a great waitress, but I loved waiting tables because uh-huh. it was it was that same kind of thing where you're in the middle of stuff and you're negotiating relationships essentially. Sure. So anyways, that was, I think, when I think about what was exciting for me, that was it. And then... Then I worked actually with our mutual good friend Barrett teaching the following summer. Oh. She was teaching, I don't know, but she, she was probably teaching French. And I taught fashion design, some program. And then a couple of years later, I got my first job teaching art at this private high school. That's the story. That's how it went from. But I was still doing design work when I worked in back to San Francisco. There was a couple of years. I designed in the summer. I worked retail. I was looking for actual teaching jobs until I got you know, what became a job for about 10 years in the area, doing a lot of different stuff that I loved at a great school. Wow. I feel like if I were in your situation, it would have been, I don't even think it would have occurred to me to give up the costume thing because it just seemed like you had risen to such a position so quickly. But I I completely 100% admire the decision. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to to do what you did and then ex- actually execute it. I, I just think, I guess the most impressive part, part is that you come up with the idea to do it and then you execute it and go for it. But I expressed disbelief before because I remember towards the end of the time when we were hanging out, I remember you talking about all the opportunities you were having and listening to the way you were talking about the opportunities. I was kind of overwhelmed and blown away by the opportunities, but also the ease and acceptance that you had with with the idea of you going on to do, I'm going to go work for the opera and do the thing and blah, blah, blah. Like you, you talking about it like it wasn't a big deal. But to me, I was just thinking, that's crazy awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I also took a lot for granted in a way. <laughs> I mean, I did, I did and I didn't. Like, I think I was in the right place at the right time to get that internship. And I worked really hard when I was there and like and loved it. I was really lucky to have mentors and bosses there that were just tremendous. And they really wanted to train me, you know, and different people over the years at that place. But also it was that sort of ego <laughs> and a bit of privilege that made me be like, no, I think I'm going to do something else. <laughs> Which then was harder to do than I thought it would be. You know, it was hard to get a teaching job. It co- took a couple of years. And then I lucked out and had people that wanted to grow me there. I worked really hard in that as well. So it's it's a mixture. You know, there's a lot of different stuff going on at that time. 
I miss it. This is my first year not actually teaching art at all. Do you do any teaching? Mm-mm, no, which I miss. I'm working with student council, so I do have some kid time, which I like. But at the last job, administrators all taught one class. So I still was in the art department and still teaching, you know, a single course a term. I miss it. I miss working with my hands. I miss, you know, working with kids on art tremendously. I don't know what, what the future holds with that, but it's kind of a core part of of me that I need to figure out a way to to keep that going, whether it's for myself just doing art, but ideally maybe working with kids doing art because it's so much fun. Yeah, it really is. Have you taught art before? I have not taught anybody any, well, no, that's not true. I, I have taught people things, but not in the capacity as a an official teacher. But no, so no, I'm not qualified to technically teach anybody. And I've thought about going to get certified to do it, but I don't know that I want to, you know, I kind of like the idea of teaching kids. And then I'm just like, oh, do I want to hang out with other people's kids all day? <laughs> it's pretty, it's cool. It's <laughs> great. Well, teenage, I love teenagers. I've taught like down to third grade. That was the youngest and they were fun too. But yeah. teenagers are, I think they're kind of the best. You have a good opportunity to make a, a serious difference with, with teenagers, I think, because you can identify with them on almost an adult level and if they're receptive then it's like the greatest thing right mm. i think i mean i don't know i'm get- <laughs> no no it's i mean they they just they have they're so smart and then they're also so messy so i think like that that sweet spot of like a lot of feelings yes and a lot of interest and yeah. a lot of engagement uh-huh. is pretty great but then all, all of the feelings that come in during it it's cool. And their growth and development at that time. Uh-huh. And they do. They can like think conceptually like adults. Of course, but they have no perspective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, or some, sometimes incredible perspective, but not consistent perspective. Okay. I've <laughs> yeah. worked with some pretty, pretty wise kids that in difficult moments in a school, they'll say something or do something. And they're like, oh, my, I could have never seen that. How did you get there? I remember one time in, in Boston, I, I knew this guy and he was teaching a class at the, was it the museum school? I don't remember. I think it was the oh, museum school. Yeah. And and he he needed to be away. So he called me and another one of his friends in to uh, do like a guest crit with the students. Mm-hmm. And cool. I, I, I don't know, I, I wasn't even that much older than them at the time, I guess, but I had a bit more experience mm-hmm. and I was kind of blown away with the insight that these kids had. (laughs) Yeah, they ended up impressing me very much. And I think that they were first years and it was great. It was it was super great. So I guess I could see myself doing that. But like I said before, I'm not qualified and I would need to go do me some learning, get a certificate (laughs) or something. I bet you'll be a great teacher. Well, yeah. If you like to talk to people, you like to talk to people. And if you're patient... And if you honor the ideas of others, you know, yeah. and if you're, if you're patient about working through process and you give people the time and space to like create what they want and have some boundaries, oh, you'd be good. You'd be good. Well, I'll put it on the list of possible things I can do, but it's, <laughs> your, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. I won't hold you to it. You have a master's degree in education? Yeah. Yeah, educational leadership. Oh, okay. What does that mean? This is like a very specific program I went to that's leadership for private schools because it's it's very, the public school and private school systems are pretty different in how they're run. So I did this like nine-month intensive program with a cohort of great people. That Mm -hmm. was, it was was good. I mean, it was at a great point in time in my job and got me connected in New York in ways I couldn't have been otherwise. 
So yes, I have that degree. It was great to take a year off of work and study like a lot and talk about, geek out about schools. Oh, I can imagine. Like, which are not, most people wouldn't think they're cool topics of conversation, but I was with people that thought schools and how people learn and lead, like the ethics in schools. All of us thought that stuff was really great to talk about. Of course it is. It's important stuff to talk about. One of the things that <laughs> I end up talking about here, especially with people like Ed and, and other people, we always end up having gripes about the education system and complaints. Um, but of course, none of us know what the hell we're talking about and we don't have any solutions or anything. But since you're mm, a master of education, no, what's, no. how do we fix, how do we make education better? No pressure. Oh my God. I don't think I can answer that question. But what I can tell you with some, some certainty, having worked in a bunch of different schools, is that there's definitely not one way to do school. And there's not one way for each kid. Um, and that learning doesn't have to be like super flashy and exciting all the time. Sometimes you just have to do work to make it to the next level. And that's okay. You should definitely feel safe and seen and heard. Yeah. Um, you should see yourself represented in the curriculum. That's mm. extremely important and in your teachers. So all that stuff's important. You should be given a real sense of the world around you. But, you know, working, working with high school kids a lot, you know, the first school I worked at for many years, kids were coming there for a reason because other school systems had not worked for them. And this school was, you know, a, for some kids, sort of a, a last hope. Um, for some families, it was a first choice, too. They knew out of the, you know, coming into ninth grade that they needed somewhere different with a lot of care. And it was really great to work with those kids at different points in their experiences and by no means was going to college the right choice for many students. For some of them, it absolutely was. For many, you know, it was community college first and then something else after. Uh, I, working in art there, I had a number of kids that like should have been in vocational school. They were so good with their hands mm -hmm. and they were so smart and skilled. But doing a, you know, foreign language class or a history class, that was tough for them. Mm -hmm. Or with kids with different learning differences where they found what worked for them in school and we had really good support but you know your traditional public school model wasn't gonna wasn't gonna be the best fit then a great number of those kids too that went straight into competitive four-year schools and had a really good experience so they just needed to be seen a little bit more and to be nurtured a little bit more along their high school journey so that was that was where I learned to teach. I learned to teach to a classroom with very very different learners sitting next to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean these kids were it not only was it mixed grade level, but it was mixed ability level. Um, and where, where was this? This was in California. This was in the Bay Area. It was a high school. And I started there teaching art. And then I got into human development and ran that. And I did all the student activities. So like, you know, I made proms. Uh, <laughs> I made all the spirit days up. And, and I love that stuff. Like, I, I love the the community is within schools. So I don't know. So any, that place really shaped me. And then I ended up working in some schools in New York that were also incredible and really fun, fantastic places. But really, they were putting kids into the Ivy Leagues for the most part, not ex expressly. And they absolutely worked to find the best fit with the kid. But most of those best fits were going to be sort of your top tier schools. And now I'm learning in a very new environment where some of our kids stay local and some of our kids go abroad uh, to Europe, to the States, Canada. Um, so I really value going into these different models. And as long as we're like meeting the kids where they are, we're doing our, our work well. But there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all model. I, I took 
I took a law class in graduate school, which was super scary. Uh, the teacher was fantastic. He was one of the best teachers I had in the program. And it was all about educational law in this country. And there was, I cannot remember the name of the case, but basically it was the case that allowed in the United States for there to be public and private and religious, you know, and then eventually charter schools. And it allowed for choice. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, that's why you guys are here doing what you're doing, <laughs> studying what you're studying. Without without this law, we would not have choice and people wouldn't be able to to do what they want. Now, we also know that you can have choice, but you actually don't have access. So that's a whole other story. That is. Um, it really particularly is. with the private school model. Or then basically, oh, you can pay to live in this neighborhood and go to this really good public school. But if you don't live in the zip code, you won't get that education. So it's not as simple as just having having the options. I recognize that 100%. But there is some interesting intention in the country. But it doesn't work for everybody at all. No. One of the reasons I, I feel like I'm better off being here is for the kids going to school because it's definitely not a perfect system and there are plenty of problems that, you know, should be addressed. And it would be nice if there was a little bit more options, but there are quite a few options in my neighborhood alone. There are three or four very good schools and you can pretty much choose to go to any of them. Sometimes there's a lottery because there are only so many spots, but the curriculum and the resources don't really change that much from school to school. So it's not like... There are different levels of, of being advantaged and disadvantaged, of course, so take this with a grain of salt. But yeah. I remember the school that I went to, it's not, not a great school. I mean, I'm sure someone might be offended at me saying that, someone from my town. But it's not it, it's not <laughs> a great school. The resources are pretty low. There was constantly people arguing about taxes and funding and budgets and blah, blah, blah. But when yeah. I was in a band and we used to play with all these other bands in there and there was a band that we played with from West Hartford, which is a very rich town. And, mm. you know, they had a recording studio at school. They made their demos there. <laughs> they had all this stuff. They were always going to crazy band count competitions. Yeah. And it was nuts. If you come from a place like that, you get so many more opportunities. But yeah. here, yeah. I feel like it's a much more, it's a. It's not even, it's not a level playing field, mm-hmm. but it is, the, the curve is much, it's much less extreme. Interesting. How does that compare to where you are now? Like, what what is... Is it an American school or an international school? No, it's so it's a Turkish American school. It's really it's super interesting. I'm learning a ton about it. I still don't know a lot, so I actually won't say a lot because I might say something incorrect. Okay. Um, <laughs> but but basically you you have we have the Ministry of Education program at the school and that's a basic program and then there are some we are recognized as an American school as well. So there's elements of our program and curriculum. Uh, students learn English by the time they graduate. They have a prep year in addition to the ninth through 12th grade. So they come in sort of, they're like super ninth graders, <laughs> right? Because they have their prep year after eighth grade. And that's mostly focused on English, but they learn all the other subject matters. But it's all of the students are Turkish at the school. Or I'd say the vast majority of them. It's not your international school where you have expats and, you know, kids and diplomats and stuff. Yeah, okay. and, it is a private school. It's part of a foundation and a family of other other private schools. Basically, a couple of different programs going on within the school, which is interesting, all which are accredited in different ways. Yeah. So I'm I'm sort of still learning a little bit of the ins and outs of all of that because it is it is complex. But students can at the middle school level test into extremely competitive, essentially private private schools. There's a lot of like placement testing that happens at the end of eighth grade. And then I don't know what it's like in the Netherlands, but here in Turkey, 
some of the best universities are essentially free. And if you if you test into them at the end of high school and you get the score to get in, that's your education, right? So that's very different than the states, as you know, where the, the, the system is just fraught. Um, I, I actually don't know if it's so. free, but it is definitely affordable. It's not like yeah. tens of thousands yeah. of euros per, per, per year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not exactly free here, but and as I understand it, the public universities, which are some of the very best, if not the best in the country are, you can go to them yeah. if you get in. Well, that's my my kids are going to a private school now, but private school means that it costs like six hundred bucks a year. Oh my god! Not sixty thousand. Not sixty thousand. Yeah, which it can be per child for elementary school. Actually, I think it's less than that. I think it was that at first. I, I don't even. I don't even know how much it costs. <laughs> that, that, that's how little I care about how much it costs. Well, I'm glad they're in good schools. What grades are they in? Uh, it's not. What would the equivalent be? Ruby is in group seven, which is, I guess, yeah. like fifth grade. I think. Okay. Or would it be sixth grade? Yeah, I don't How know. How old is she? She's ten. Okay, she's gonna be eleven this year. In sep- her birthday is in September, and Doris is eight, and she will be nine in May. Oh. Okay, so like third grade, maybe second, third. Yeah, something like that. They have their um challenges but for the most part it's a bilingual school they're they're learning dutch and english and but you know ruby has uh, dyslexia and um we're getting extra special classes for her and it's it's a it's a challenge to find all the time for this stuff you know because they also want to play sports and they want to do this and then it's, it's just constant stuff like these poor kids are constantly busy they're they're so busy i was not busy when i was a kid i was not either i I like I spent a lot of time roller skating on my street, you know. Yeah. Like that was in drawing and reading books. Yeah. And they do that too, but it's yeah. Do they have stuff after school like every day? No, but almost. It, we're kind of in a in a bit of a lull because they they were do they were both doing swimming lessons, but they have both gotten all the swimming diplomas that they they need to get to be approved <laughs> by the Dutch government and they are official swimmers. On the weekends, they're doing uh, sports. Ruby goes for her therapy two days a week. We have two daycare days. Anyway, it's, it's, it's quite a schedule. I'm sure they have good downtime, too. It's time to hang out. Yeah, but I can tell you right now, well, actually, we just heard that the, the government is starting the school vacation a week early to give, give a, mm-hmm. a cool-down period for corona. And I'm definitely not looking forward to trying to come up with things to entertain them for three weeks. <laughs> There's so many kids in the neighborhood. It's going to be fun. But it's like I just found out today that next week they're... They're off? Yeah, that's starting early because Wait, of Corona. You got three days notice? Yeah. or As, yeah. A, as a parent? Yeah. What, do you, what happens if you need childcare for that time? Yeah, I guess you're screwed. I mean, I guess it's the days of COVID, though. It, schools can flip on a dime and say we're doing this out of the other. Exactly. I think know. most places are pretty open to, or at least now they're accustomed to and set up for remote working, depending on what your job is. Yeah. Well, I hope you guys have fun together. Oh, we're gonna. We're gonna. It's going to be great. But <laughs> it's, it's good. the good thing is that we'll all get to sleep a little bit later in the morning. That's the best part. Mm, That's the best what part. time does your family get up? About seven. Oh, that's luxury. Are you kidding me? That's so nice. Oh, man, I am up at 5.15 these days. That is brutal. 
It's brutal. And it's super dark. It doesn't get dark until after I've been working at my job for half an hour. Then the light comes up over the mountain. I can see it from my office. And I go out in the hallway and I'm like, look, here it comes. It's a tough yeah. time of year. I was thinking about getting one of those little desk lamps that with it emits the, the special light. The heat therapy? Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. I looked into that for, for years in New York because seasonal stuff definitely got to me. I hadn't realized it until I like cried a lot one January and then realized I, I should probably take some vitamin D and should probably like intentionally sit outside a little bit more. Do all that thing, yeah. Yeah, it can be tough, you know, if you're used to, to being outside. I always ask everybody, or I don't always, but I try to always ask everybody if they think of themselves as being successful. Do you, do you think of yourself as being successful? I don't know. I think I have had really cool jobs and been super lucky, like very, very lucky to do the work that I've done and work with the people that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. So I think in the, that career wise, yes, I'm, I am what you would consider to be successful. And it's, especially because I love it. Like I love all the different work that I've done and the places I've been. I think when I was younger, and even in like my 20s and stuff, I thought that, I think I imagined because I lived sort of, I'd grown up in one house, same house, parents, you know, the thing that my life would maybe be settled somewhere. And that has fully changed for me. Like now, I don't know where I will be in a number of years. It could very well be Istanbul. It could be California. It might be someplace else. And I think my perspective of what home is has really changed. But I think that that's pushed against what the norm is and what other people are sort of showing and doing out there in the world as home. I don't have kids. I'm not planning to at this point. Uh, that hasn't, hasn't been a thing. And I think that as a, you know, woman in her early forties, like that can be seen as, so, so some of that whole picture of what success is, I, I really, what I imagined it would be just isn't, but I'm happy. So it's, it's odd in that way. And I hadn't realized until, the last number of years, how strongly some of those norms were in me in terms of what the expectations were. And it's not because I'm getting it from family. If my mom is rad and understanding and, and totally gets stuff, Alto's mom is the same way. You know, everybody's, everybody's cool in our lives and I like our life. But I think that, that, that when I hear the word success, it's supposed to be something else. I think that the thing that I, I fundamentally like probably struggle with the most now is that I'm not like I'm not dancing anymore which was a big part of my life and that had always really balanced me out and I'm not teaching art or and I'm starting to make a little bit of art again but usually like the dance and the art component along with the teaching component really helps me feel whole and since the pandemic hit like I haven't been able to dance in the way that I want to that has been like very hard but I took up biking so that's fun I took lots of walks so that works so I think that that's the piece that I'm, that, you know, you don't feel complete with the artistic side of yourself because that's a little hard. I always say that art's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't have any art projects going and I, I have ideas, but I'm just, yeah, I just, I'm not executing them and maybe I never will, but I always just say art's not going anywhere. I don't harbor any illusions that I'm going to get famous or anything, but I, I definitely want to make art. This is sort of, an extension of art projects, I, I think, and mm -hmm, or at least mm -hmm. the motivations for art projects that I've had in the mm -hmm. past. And yeah, it's another, it's another outlet. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it's, I think it's absolutely creating art. 
and community, which is huge. Yeah. Um, it's hard. I mean, I think it can be tough to feel quote unquote successful. And like for me anyways, life is still not balanced in the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. So that's a, it's a wacky question at this time. Yeah. But like career wise, yes, I am super lucky to be where I am in my career and very happy in that aspect of it. But the, the other stuff is like, I don't, I don't know. Yes, in some areas. And then I got to get got to get the, the art piece back in a way that feels feels good. Like working with my hands again would be fun. One of the guys that I spoke with just said, yeah, I don't, I don't even really think about it that way. It's just on a project to project basis. Did I mm. did I do this? Did I finish this? Is this going well? Is this working? Mm. And then mm. so, yeah, you can succeed at some projects or aspects of your life and not necessarily fail, but be less proficient at other areas of your life for, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's all like different things are kind of going in and out of balance in different ways or like getting more attention as another thing. I, I feel like things are pretty chaotic for, for me at this time in my life. Yeah. And not just because of Corona stuff, I guess Corona is part of it, but then there's unemployment, then there's having young children and then it's just a lot of stuff. I'll be here and then I won't even know where the day went. There's just no time. And I don't understand why there's no time. There should be time. That's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, I think of it as chaos, but it's uh, it's something. It's certainly something. Yeah, it's it's interesting Like what, what we can spend a lot of time and energy on, what can be very important. Sometimes my tasks during the days are, are weird, mm-hmm. you know, but it amounts to something that's great like i might have to problem solve something at work that's totally wacky from the outside perspective (laughs) yeah and that can be like a really hot topic in the moment of like you got to put out this fire this is a situation to deal with and in retrospect it's not or it could be very very serious right right? and you get through that and then you're like okay i learned this i learned that like hopefully this person's okay that person's fine made it through what is this what is this in regards to is this in regards to just the running of the school yeah, yeah, this is like this is this is life in schools, right? Because you in a way there there's an ebb and flow to every school year and lots of things are the same problems, but they're also unique because they're they're connected to individuals that have their own experiences and own stories, right? You're working with people. So mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating stuff. You worked in a school, you know the the flow of the school year. I do, and I do. solving through stuff. So anyways, you can thinking about like what what you actually spend your time on. And if you go really granular, sometimes you're like, wow, that was really wonderful. And other times you go, well, that was really weird. <laughs> I, I spent, I just spent the last week figuring this thing out that may or may not have been super important. <laughs> or sometimes you'll organize something that's amazing and an experience you'll talk about and think about for years to come. So anyway, the word success is, is a bizarre one. I, I may stop using it in the description of the podcast because I'm, I'm I don't even know. It's it's not bad. Use it if you want to use it. Have you changed your own definition of it after having a lot of conversations about the idea of it? I don't know if I've changed my definition, but I feel like it's it's becoming more defined. I feel like it's pretty much the same as it's always been. You know, what, mm. like there's there's kind of the there's kind of the internal definition, and then there's the the definition that I use, because invariably, whoever I talk to, we always we always say that person is successful, meaning mm-hmm. like that person has a good job and they make lots of money. But then we'll have a conversation about being self-fulfilled and being happy doing what we're doing or happy or mm-hmm. content doing whatever we're doing. And 
feeling happiness after completing a task. So we talk about the stereotypical aspect of what most people mean when they say success. And then we talk about, yeah, but I'm helping people when I do this and it's really nice and it, it, it makes me feel better about life and blah, 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 blah. It's not really about the money. Do you know what I mean? And then it's got to be separate from, but it shouldn't be. It's not not to not to use it in that, but like if it's categorized as this other thing, put a lot of things into like different. I guess I do the same thing. <laughs> I think. Well, I think everybody does it with, without even thinking about it, because, like, say you're talking about a movie star, and Robert Downey Jr. is a success. <laughs> And, and, but you have a nice example. <laughs> but you have a friend who's an actor, <laughs> and and is that guy not a success because he's not Robert mm. Downey Jr.? You know, you know what I mean. Then it like then you just start describing people as being more successful, and 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 what they're saying is he makes more money or he's well more well known mm. or whatever. So I think that you know obviously I went to art school, and I've never taken any sort of initiative to be what the stereotypical idea or ideal of success is. So clearly some part of me has always believed that it's just trying to find something that you can cope with, you know, with your internal, that I can cope with, with my internal, you know, ethics or morals or whatever. Wait, yeah. What do you mean that you can cope with? Like that, that okay, I've got to find the thing out there that I can stand? <laughs> well, in a way, but no, I mean, like, I want to have a job where I'm, I don't feel like I'm part of the problem. Like I, I like, I used yeah. to work in education. Yeah. I like working in education yeah. because I'm helping people. Yeah. The, my last job, I was working for a website company and, and, you know, we basically made art portfolios for people. I feel like it's not mm. a huge boon to the, to the well-being of the universe, but helping people show their artwork is, is certainly not harming anybody. Cool. And, and yeah. you know what I mean? And, and I suppose yeah. later in, in life, there are things that I absolutely won't do, but as unemployment progresses, my morals are loosening a bit. And also mm-hmm, as an mm-hmm. old person who is sort of worried about what the hell's going to happen when he retires, old an old, oh an aging God. person, an aging person oh my God. who who doesn't really have a lot going on in the retirement fund, mm-hmm. I start to worry about these things. And yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm a little bit looser in my ideals about how and where to get money. But still, yeah. I do want something that I think is more helpful than not. I can appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think like being in San Francisco, well, all of the tech industry was just really taking off in the yeah. 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I was an art teacher and like dancing all the time. Uh, and a lot of my friends were artists. We would always be like, ah, oh, the Google people, the Facebook people, they're uh, taking over. They're making yeah. the city so expensive. Ah, that's still, that's still very much the narrative there. And then, then there was this insta judgment. Well, they can't like their jobs, right? Like, how could how could they possibly like their jobs? I am sure there were plenty of people working and still are at the, all those companies that love their work. Of course, but I think there was just this this like outsider insecure judgment that was passed that like, oh, you're working for that company and like you're you're a tech person and it's bad. And there was a real sort of ethos in the air around that. And then I moved to New York, and the tech industry did not run the city. Mm-hmm. at all right and i met one or two google people and everybody was like that's so cool you work there can we come to your office you have like a dance to the games in the basement can we come play with them <laughs> and it was a totally different idea and mentality right like oh i heard the architecture is really great and you have co-working spaces and it was it was kind of refreshing having 
seen that as something to fight against in the Bay Area because it, it did really raise the housing prices and that was really difficult. And I don't really know anybody who can basically be in the city anymore, you know, no, it's tough. if you're doing a job and education and stuff. But they're also not like the worst things out there. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some, I mean, whatever, it depends on the company and stuff, but no, of course, it's, it's, I don't know. It's it, was, it was such a judgment. It was just, I guess what I'm saying is it was a judgment on, I just judged and thought, you know, well, there's no way that you could like that job and you're just doing it for the money. You know, whereas like I was doing noble art teaching, but whatever. The tech industry is a tough one because yeah, there's a lot of sketchiness going on and there's this whole big brother master of the universe thing going on. But they are also building the infrastructure of the future. You know, like there's this whole Mm -hmm. discussion Mm -hmm. about the infrastructure of the United States now and how they want to invest a bazillion dollars. And nobody wants to invest a bazillion dollars. But I was talking to this this woman, Juliana, in the last episode, the one that's online right now. Mm -hmm. And she just inherited her mom's house in Puerto Rico. And Mm -hmm. she was saying that people Mm -hmm. in some areas are still have no electricity from the big hurricane in, what was it, 2018? Two, two, two or three years ago. And I, I think that's crazy. But then she would also, she also went on to talk about how the infrastructure was so damaged, they, they had to search around for the Google balloon so they could connect to the internet. And then they would use WhatsApp or, or Facebook Messenger or whatever to commute. Like that was their lifeline to everybody. And the government totally failed them. So they're doing something right. They're, they're building infrastructure that works and it's, uh, it's worth investigating. And I use a lot of their services and I am, I have mixed feelings about it, but it, overall, you could put all your money in the, the aging, decrepit, crumbling into the ocean uh, basket of the of the, the U.S. government and its crappy infrastructure, or you can, or you can trust in the, the young super geniuses who are trying to solve the math that that makes the world a better place. Also, maybe a worse place. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, no, I hate, I hate I mean, Facebook, but but it it. it there, there are aspects of it that in some way could be a, a good thing. Good and bad and all that, yes. There, there's good and bad in all of it. There's good and bad in yes. all of it. There's good and bad in all of it. And I think, you know, just shutting shutting the door on something and like naming it one thing is not necessarily helpful. No, but, um, but also I can see yeah. how like, you know, talking about how your, your friends or the, these people might not, they don't understand how it might be enjoyable to work there. Keep in mind, there are, I don't know, how many people work for Google? Like a million, like a hundred thousand. I have no idea how many people work for Google, but thousands many, of people work. For, yeah, yeah. They're each working on their own little thing. So many of them just have their own little puzzle to work on, like their own little puzzle, yeah. and they can take ownership of it. It must be very gratifying to sit there and work on the thing that you're deeply interested in all day, and then present it to the thing, and then maybe, just maybe, it becomes a piece of software that anyone in the world can use for free. Super cool. It's super cool. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've met some folks that work there and they love it. And they're very happy. And then there's the advertising. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a double-edged sword. We got on this tangent from the how far you'd go in considering oh, yeah, a yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. And then how I used to judge do not anymore Mm -hmm. folks and and thinking like how could you do something that you know you don't love and like yeah what is the purpose and point of the day well some folks like that's totally fine like some people want to leave work at the door but also sometimes you have to though that's the other thing and sometimes you have to absolutely absolutely 
not you are not going to love your job all the time or all aspects of it. And sometimes no. you won't love it at all because you just have to have it to have it to survive. Right. Which is very real. I'm trying to be more picky, and I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can be a little picky. But it's been almost mm-hmm. a year, and I'm I'm, I'm feeling the burn. Mm-hmm. So I I'm feeling itchy. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm poised to yeah. take anything. I'm just feeling the burn. We'll say. I think that I think of you as being successful, be, just simply because it seems like it might just be your personality. You know, you want to work in opera set design you go out and you get involved with the opera and they let you design stuff for them and then they give you a job and then you decide you want to work in education you you know you pivot you go get your master's degree and now you're the dean of a school in istanbul and and also just the fact that you've moved you take these opportunities and you move different places i think that that's an admirable quality to go out there and and explore and see what the world has to offer you know whatever success success but it sounds good to me. And I'm glad that you're doing this today. Thank you. I appreciate it. it it's an honor. Thank you. No, thank Ooh. you. And, but I have another question. I have another question. Yeah, yeah. This Go ahead. Is, this up? is a very serious question. So get ready. Yes. Let me collect myself before I ask. Uh-oh. You are the Dean of Teaching and Learning. When you watch a movie like Animal House or Old School, do you ever identify with the Dean characters because they are often portrayed as evil? I don't identify with <laughs> how teachers are portrayed in general on television. It's the worst. I get really mad. I didn't realize the weight when I went from being art teacher, Anna, or art teacher, Ms. Romsky, yeah, to being Dean Ms. Romsky. It, it will still surprise me. I now I'm more aware of it now, but like what that title comes with. I could I could be planning a project with a kid in my office, a child I work with all the time that, you know, really strong relationship. And if I shoot them and would shoot them an email 20 minutes later and say, hey, pop by my office, I need to talk to you. They would come shaking. Yo. because of the title right, right and 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 i would always be like why why are you scared you know and i had i had to have really difficult conversations with students that was part of my job yeah so of course i understood it sometimes when they came shaking but you know i i would constantly forget because i had my 10 years prior of actually more than that like 12 12 years of being in the art classroom mm-hmm. and when you're the art teacher it's a very different relationship that you have for the most part. It doesn't mean you're not having difficult conversations. It doesn't mean there's not difficulty on the job. But that Dean piece comes with a weight to it. Also, I think, from what I remember growing up in California, Dean was not heavy in the way that it is in the East Coast. Oh, okay. Uh, there's like a prep school-ness where Dean can be something that's got like a real gravitas towards it. To it, towards yeah. it, for it, on it. You know, you know what I mean? And that translates here as well. Now I'm used to it more, and I will realize, like I'm, I can, I try to be, anyways, really careful in who I'm talking to when, so that you know, because there can be an inherent, I'm in trouble because of this, and that's not at all what I'm going for. Like my my job, dean of students supports students. Right. That's the job, right? Yeah. Dean of teaching and learning support all the teaching and learning that happens in the classroom, support teachers. That's my job. Right on. So, yeah, it's, it's good. It's really good stuff. But no, I don't identify with those guys. I hate how teachers are portrayed. It's a real bummer. They're always the <laughs> bad guy. Are, yeah. Well, and just teachers are often like, rah, 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 in the front of the classroom and people mm-hmm. hate them. There's only been a few things that I actually admire 
who the teachers are. They're usually, the media paints teachers as being pretty idiotic, which is too bad. I guess school is not seen as something that's fun. Yeah, I, I think it depends on what you, what you're watching. If it's a dumb comedy or something like Animal House or Old School, then mm. the the target demographic is kids in the school age. We were talking before about children's books. A lot of the time in, in children's books, parents are b- portrayed as buffoons because the kids are the smart ones and they really get it. So uh, I, I think, yeah. it, I think yeah. it just it depends on who your audience is. <laughs> That's a very good point. You are right. Because parents are never buffoons. Yes. <laughs> That's very true. Is there something else you'd like to say? No, I don't necessarily have anything else. Sorry. I'm, no, it's okay. I, I, I feel like this is a good place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I will, fun. you know, maybe talk to you sporadically from time to time in the future. Sounds good. All right. Come around. Tell Ed that I say hello. You can tell him yourself. Um, He's going to be listening to this. I will. No. Hi, Ed. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Slop lecker, as the Dutch people say. What does that mean? Sleep well. Oh, I'll say igedulet, which means good night. Good night. That was Anna. It was great catching up with her, and I really liked the way she talked about being a foreigner in a new city, because that is something that I can relate to. I also admire her courage to abandon the beginning of a promising costume design career to pursue what she considers her true calling. I think my favorite part of this story is that she decided what was right for her from the start, and when that changed, she changed. Thanks for being on the show, Anna. And thank you, dear listener. I appreciate your time and consideration. If you want to spend more time with me, go check out at Feel Free to Deviate on Instagram or go to feelfreetodeviate.com. And don't be afraid to click on the Feel Free to Donate link. Special thanks to Audio Master Ed from Boomcast.com. He does good work, and I promise to never send him AirPod audio again. The next guest is a mystery at this point, and that makes me a little nervous, but there's no need for you to be nervous. I will come up with something, and it's going to be good. Happy New Year, and be excellent to each other.